Psalm 131. The Psalms are really God's worship and praise manual. They're the counseling course for suffering people. They are the medicinal prescription book for what ails you in your heart and in your soul. They're the roadmap and guidebook for suffering. It's a book of prayer. The Psalms is predominantly prayers. And it's like Goliath's sword. I think Bob Jennings said there's none like it. Give it to me. The Psalms. As far as Christian experience and Christian growth and sanctification, uh, no book can really more equip us with the emotional, psychological, spiritual battles that we face face as a believer. Um, Psalm shows the highs and the lows of the Christian life, both the tears and the sorrows, the victories and the defeats, uh, times of assurance and great joy, like you have this morning, and times of sin and defeat. Um, the, song, the word psalms, the original word, actually basically meant poems set to the music of stringed instruments. And the Psalter became the hymn book and the worship book of, old, of the Old Testament saints. Uh, and it would do any Christian a world of good to read at least two or three psalms a day and to really camp out in them, to meditate, to, to evaluate each psalm so much that you come to a conviction of what that psalm is about. What, what theme does this psalm take on? Like Psalm 1 the contrast of the godly and the righteous person. Psalm 2, man's rebellion and God's response. Or Psalm 15, marks of a true worshiper. Or Psalm 23, you all can theme that one, can't you? The good shepherd and his sheep. Or Psalm 51, godly repentance. Or Psalm 119, what's the theme? The Word of God. 172 of the 176 verses speak of God's Word, His precepts, statutes, ordinances, commandments, etc. Psalm 131, the theme is true humility. Now, I'm going to speak on David, the humble man. And I want you to just picture, well, let's read the psalm, three verses. Second shortest psalm in the psalms. What's the shortest one? Want to remember? 117 has two verses. 131 has three. 61 words, depending on your translation. Lord, my heart is not haughty or proud, nor my eyes are not lofty. 
And I do not exercise myself in great matters or things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned from its mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. Can you picture a person saying with sincerity, my heart is not proud? Doesn't that make them proud? <laughs> can, you, can you picture yourself saying to someone, my heart's not proud and I'm not trying to do lofty things that are beyond me? Can you picture saying to the Lord in prayer, Lord, my heart is not proud and my eyes aren't lofty? Can you picture yourself saying you're not that way? Beside this psalm I recently wrote in the margin of my Bible, it takes real grace to have what's in this psalm. Imagine, James Boyce said, living with Jesus, traveling with Jesus, hearing Jesus, living with Him for three years, and still wanting to be important yourself. Rather than coming to the place where you just want Jesus Christ to be important. Our being self-important or significant is of zero importance. But Christ being supremely significant is supremely important. That's what this psalm is about. Spurgeon said it's a short ladder that reaches great heights. Because if you and I could have by God's grace and by the working of the Holy Spirit the reality of what's in this psalm, it would be profound. This psalm is a perfect Old Testament commentary on the Lord's words, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I want you to go away with this thought in your heart today. What if the truth of Psalm 31 was really in me? Do we have this reality of a humble heart? David is not boasting. He's not deceived. He's not thinking of himself more highly than he should. He's saying and writing under inspiration what God has done in him now. A humble heart. Freedom from pride as a pattern of life. We sang earlier, no guilt in life, no fear in death. How about no pride controlling me? That'd be a good goal, isn't it? And there's so many things that want to make us self-proud. The whole world, all media, all advertising, all higher education drives us, pumps us full of self-importance, self-ambition. But humility, how rare is it? How important, how essential, how attractive, how beautiful, and how fragrant. What's in these three brief verses? Well, it's marked by a tone of really simplicity and childlikeness. 
When did you last say about yourself, you know, I have become more like a child spiritually, and I don't have a proud heart. Here, David is saying he has a consistent, humble heart that is now not, as a rule, prideful. He doesn't have eyes that are ego-driven to be something in that he's not. When we really see what David is actually saying here, it's, it's remarkable and it's radical. This psalm shows there are three things that were not representative of David's life as a rule or a pattern. In other words, whatever he was before Psalm 131, he's not like this anymore. A proud man, number one, dominated by pride. Anyone who is dominated by pride is not a Christian. You cannot come to Christ and know Christ and pride still rule and reign and be have dominion. Even in coming to Christ and truly coming to know Him and being changed, as we heard our sister testify this morning about the change that God brings, pride must die. So, David says, my life is now not dominated by pride. I'm not a proud man now. I'm not an ambitious man dominated by carnal ambition. Lofty eyes. Pursuing things too lofty, too big for me. He was not, he's saying he was not intellectually high-minded, arrogant man dominated by carnal ambition. Meaning, as, as big and significant as David was, the, the greatest king in Israel's history, he didn't have a motive to become a big shot or promote himself with self-importance. There's three things in verse 1. There's one thing in verse 2. And there's one exhortation of application in verse 3. So let's, let's learn, as our sister said this morning, Katie, right? As Katie said, they began to learn wonderful things out of the Bible. Let's learn, learn some wonderful things out of Psalm 131. First of all, humility. Lord, my heart is not proud. My, my heart now is humble. My heart is not lifted up. Now this is completely an inward thing where no one sees. He's talking about the condition of his heart. He's giving us a glimpse autobiographically right into his heart. You know, cardiologists will run a camera down in your heart. They can see, right? They can see things. The Holy Spirit has run a camera in David's spiritual heart and letting us actually see what he was like. As Psalm 51 says, wisdom in the secret heart. This is an inner heart change. What he actually claims and affirms here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is really amazing. I am now not a proud man. That's astounding. Because as I said earlier, if you actually think that and say it and believe it, does it not cancel out any humility that might have been there? 
And actually, isn't it a statement of pride? Well, here, apparently, not. if you think you're humble, you're not. But to say it out loud, that's really prideful, isn't it? But yet, this psalm is, is David's testimony. If a man is truly humble, can he claim humility? Meaning, I don't mean going around, you know, read my book, uh, Humility and How I Attained It. <laughs> or the sequel, The Ten Most Humble People in the World and How I Trained the Other Nine. I'm not talking about boastful claiming it. I'm talking about acknowledging the good thing that is in you by the grace of God. Because as a Christian, you would say, I do love the Lord. You would say, I have a heart. God has put in me a heart to seek Him. So can you not be honest with yourself before the Lord and acknowledge and see God has worked he has worked and he is working humility in me. That's what David is doing here. He's saying if pride has been dominant in my life in the past, and if we had a show of hands, they'd all go up in here. Pride has dominated and driven and motivated all of our lives at points. And for the non-Christian, for the unbeliever, pride is around their neck like a necklace, the Bible says. So, David said, if pride has been dominant in my life in the past, it is not now. If it has filled my heart and my eyes and my ambitions in the past, it doesn't now. Humility was worked in him, was cultivated, and it became, according to this psalm, a mark of David's life. It was a reality he possessed of not, not having a proud heart. Unpretentious is what he was. What does that mean? What's it mean to be unpretentious? Well, it means not attempting anymore to impress others with your greatness or your self-importance, or, in our context, how spiritual you want others to think you are. Free from motives to impress others, or to be great, or to be well-known. A close reading of David's life reveals that he wasn't dominated by self-importance and pride. I remember in 1996... Ian and Jean Murray came from Scotland and they were with us in Texas. They stayed in our home for a week and he preached for us. And when we brought him from the airport, came in our house, he called our six children. Were there six at that time? Yeah, there were. He calls them in the backyard. He starts playing soccer with them, running around, kicking the ball, laughing with them. And I thought, it impressed me. His humility, his realness. He wasn't in trying to impress anyone. He was just being with the children. And I think he won, won their hearts that week. David wasn't dominated by self-importance and pride. Passions at times? Yes. Anger at times? Yes. 
Impulsiveness, yeah, but not arrogance and pride. Pride blinds us and then it binds us and it robs us. It becomes bondage. In Scripture, it's quite amazing that every time someone humble themselves, even King Ahab, even all the wicked kings, every time they humble themselves, God had mercy on them and, and averted judgment and, and showed kindness to them. And every time someone hardened themselves, Herod, Acts chapter 12, and others, every time someone hardened themselves in arrogance and pride and would not humble themselves when they had opportunity, God soon judged them. And let me give you some evidence of David's active humility. Let's see some evidence in David's life. You follow me in this. Of of verse 1 being true. David was a warring king. He wasn't allowed to build the temple because... He was a bloody bloody man, a bloody king, right? But he did not greedily aspire to greatness by attacking other kings and nations. All of his wars as king were defensive to protect Israel. He wasn't going after other nations just to conquer them, to build his own big kingdom. He did not kill Saul and seize the throne when he had opportunity. Even after Samuel anointed him, he waited for God to fulfill God's promise to make him king. He did not scheme or manipulate like Jacob did. And for ten years he had to run from Saul and he did not raise his hand against Saul when he could have. When Shimei, little pipsqueak Shimei, comes out cursing David and throwing dirt and David's man said, oh, let me go take his head off. He wouldn't, David wouldn't let his men touch him. He said, let him alone. God's letting him curse me. Let him do it. Self-control in the moment. He fled before Absalom's young gang who were chasing him, but he cared more for his son than his insulted authority. When David in anger was coming to wipe out wicked Nabal, in his house, he gained self-control through Abigail's intercession and he humbled himself to not do what his flesh would have driven him to do. David is bringing the ark back and he's dancing with all his might. Wouldn't you love to have seen it? All of us would have been embarrassed to do it. But he wouldn't. He's dancing with all his might. McCall, his wife, despises him in, her, in his in her heart, and then she shames him. And he says, well, I'll go, let me go do it some more. I'll be yet more vile. He would have quenched the Holy Spirit to preserve his royal dignity in the eyes of men. But he didn't, because he had joy. In summary, David showed a noble humility as king to wait on God and worship God and not exalt himself. He had his faults, but those faults were not self-righteousness, egotism, and ambition. How about us? Is self-righteousness rule in us? Does egotism drive much in our lives? 
So, number one, he says, my heart isn't proud. Can you say that? Could God ever get us to the point where He would enable us to be able to say it? Secondly, He says, in the second phrase, My eyes are not lofty, and I don't exercise myself in great matters or things too high for me. Now notice these phrases, great matters, or things too high for me. Not things too high for others, things too high for me. Secondly, he says he has no carnal ambition beyond what he was meant to be. My eyes are not lofty. I do not pursue or exercise myself in great matters or things too high for me. First, no proud heart. Second, no carnal ambition. This has to do with self-importance in your own mind. High-minded conceit that drives a person to pursue big plans and self-goals to become somebody for self-exaltation. Now here's here's the current view all around us. Let no one tell you you can't be anything you want to be. Big dreams, pursue them. You can be anything you can dream and any, you can accomplish anything you, you want to accomplish. Go for fame. Envision it. Pursue it. Let nothing stop you. You can live your dream. Be somebody great. Accomplish big and be big. All education drives that. All the media drives that. Famous people drive that. Lofty eyes. David says, I don't have them anymore. I don't have them. My eyes, what I envision, what I want, what I'm pursuing now, have been mortified, changed, and controlled. I'm not trying to be anybody important. I'm just content to be who I am. Human, high-minded, intellectual, self-ambition. David had died to. H.C. Leupold said this on this verse. There may have been a time when David, when great plans and ambitions surged through David's heart and drove him down the road of ambition. But he exited that road and he never got on it again. He came to see it was wrong to seek great things for himself. Now God exalted him to be the king of Israel. David didn't exalt himself. It's one thing if God raises a person up to a position of leadership or even fame. It's another thing for selfish ambition to drive a person after that to pursue it and to covet it and want to do it yourself. How much is this world driven by an aim for fame? David did not position himself forward for self-greatness. Rather, Great position and leadership was thrust on him when he was tending the sheep. And God told Eli, or Samuel, he's the one. Now let's consider the second half of verse 1. 
I do not exercise myself in great matters, things too high and beyond me. Question. You think anybody ever does that on social media? In the 1980s, I took an advanced senior level, I think it was either senior or graduate level, history of philosophy course. The class started out with about 80, and in a week there was, I think, 8 or 10 in there. I said, I'm not quitting. I can learn something. University of North Texas. Well, it was tough going. But what if one day the professor had come to me and said, Mr. Tomlinson, I see you're a little older than these guys in here. I, I've got called out uh, to go to a funeral, and my assistants are teaching class. Would you be willing to step in and teach Aquinas philosophy? What do you think I should do? What an opportunity. Now, what a foolish thing it would have been for me to try. Things too high for me. About two months ago, a friend called me and he said, Matt, could I come by and, and would you teach me Revelation chapter 8? Because the guy teaching our class is sick and they don't have anybody to teach it, so they've asked me to teach it. Would you come on, could I come on and you teach it to me so I could teach it? <laughs> I said, No. Not a good idea. I said, brother, you don't have a clue what Revelation's about. You're not a teacher. Now, we were, he and I were close, so he listened to me. I said, you're not a teacher. You'd end up being frustrated or embarrassed and ashamed and regretting that you did it. You're not ready. You're not equipped. You don't have what it takes. They shouldn't have put that on you. Don't do it. And he listened to me. He would have been trying to do what's beyond his experience, his ability, and his own giftedness. David says, I do not exercise myself. I don't pursue. I don't try to become. I don't try to accomplish things that aren't given to me by God. I'm not going to try to become something I'm truly not. Things too high, things too lofty. And here's how some have translated this phrase. I don't seek out and try to walk in matters that are way above my head. It has not been my course to attempt or take on things beyond my capacity and my abilities because of selfish ambition. Edwards paraphrases the thought, I do not have an ambitious heart to try to converse in or function in things beyond me. Big and lofty things can always be in our minds, always on the horizon. I remember one time I said, I really should read all of Jonathan Edwards' works. And then I came to the place of saying, I probably shouldn't. <laughs> so, Think about this. Big and lofty things. Well, let's, let's just get real. What's big and lofty to Jesus? Loving your wife and children. That's what's really lofty. 
walking with God, staying in the Scriptures daily, getting it in you, really being consistent in your walk and in your daily pursuit of the Lord, loving the brethren, serving the brethren as a humble, faithful servant in your church. That's the big stuff in God's eyes for every Christian. And that's the lofty stuff we ought to be about. Not seeking. Isn't it amazing? On the way to Jerusalem, when the Lord's been saying to him, the Son of Man's going to be betrayed, they're arguing at who's going to be the greatest. And two of them's mom is, is pleading for them to have the highest seats in the kingdom. And they wanted it. Both those boys, they wanted it too. And an, an argument ensued, real anger from the other ten disciples, because it was probably in their heart too. It is, it is not sinful to hold, hold a, an honored position in ministry or public service, but God should have put, put a person there and a person should not seek it. Let us beware of ambition. It's foolish to meddle in matters and intellectual discussion beyond our capacity and beyond our growth. Self-control. And self-humbling are great attainments and must be sought diligently and earnestly. Blessed is the one who's become like a weaned child. Someone said, great men never think they're great and small men never think they're small. Elisha Cole said, it's one of the hardest matters under the sun to really become nothing in our eyes and to really be honest with who we are and what we are. So, how did this process happen in David? If he says, I'm not pr- I don't have a proud heart, I'm not pursuing carnal, great ambition, how did this process happen in David? How did he get from A to B? How did he go from being proud at times maybe as a pattern of life, to not being proud as a general rule. I mean, here's, here's the deal. Think about this. You picture life as a, as a road or a, a pattern of living. The Christian is not to be dominated by pride with some moments of humility sprinkled in. No. The pattern of our life should be a pattern of humility with some moments of pride sprinkled in. Those ought to be the exceptions, not the rule. And that's what happened with David. How did this process happen with David? What does he say? Verse 2, I have behaved and quieted myself. David's acting here, not just God. And we know grace is at work. But David did something to himself. To paraphrase it, in Texas might say, he said to himself, calm down, big boy. You're not what you think. Settle down. He hushed himself. He took himself by the collar of his heart and he said, stop. You're you're not going to be that way. You're not great. And don't go after... He quieted his soul. He, he mortified these mental 
desires, these, these hidden motives of greatness and pride. It was a possible long conflict. He reduced them. He reduced his thoughts of self-greatness. And verse 2 is how he grew to possess this reality and achieve it. He stilled his soul. He quieted his thoughts and desires. He put to death selfish ambition to be something that God wasn't really in. It was a weaning process. Like a child who has been nursing for so long and it's a strong-willed child and that child just doesn't want to give it up. And it's a fight. Finally, when that child is weaned, it can be quieted and resting in mom's arms and the fight's over. A weaned child, self-control has come. David said, I've become like a weaned child. That's, that's a great deep reality when God works that in a person and they actually can become more humble and it's real and humility dominates rather than pride and self. What, a, what an amazing reality. Well, verse 3 the humble man's exhortation to us, to us all. It's an exhortation to all of God's people. In the context of humility and not selfish pursuit, humility, what are we to hope in? Let Israel hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. This is an all-inclusive exhortation about life. Pride, it is being mortified. Pride, not before God. All our glory, all our pride must be in Christ and who He is and what He's done. He gets credit for everything. Without Him, I can do nothing. Lofty, selfish ambitions, goals, gifts, ministry for the future, longings, all must be from Him, of Him, by Him, to Him, for Him. So our, li- our eyes here, David calls us, to lift our eyes from self and to really focus on the Lord. Genuinely. Permanently. All our hope is not in what we want to pursue. Future hope is in the Lord alone. Hoping in Him alone. Now let's apply this a little bit more closely to us. Think of the ambitious pride and desire that dominates. I mentioned it earlier. Think of the the ambitious pride and self-opinionated flood that dominates social media. What if every Christian, every preacher, every pastor, every apologist, every blogger, every Facebook friend, every opinion expresser would take this psalm to heart and live it? 
be a lot less stuff posted and a lot fewer careless words that people will have to give an account of in the day of judgment. Jesus said every idle careless word you will give account in the day of judgment. That scares me. That's why I don't do Facebook. I, I couldn't control myself. That idiot. Why is he posting that? I need to set him straight. Learn to... I mean, there would be a far less war of words, contentious dialogue, relationships damaged by Facebook fiends and tweeters and Instagrammers and Insta-fools. Solomon says the fool utters all his heart. <laughs> Learn to control and stand down with our drive to express views, correct everybody, get angry at people you'll never meet over what they posted. <clears throat> you get angry and upset at people you've never met and never will meet because of something they say. And it draws you in to a war of words. What a powerful trap for wasting time and for ego growth and for selfish ambition. Psalm 131 certainly applies to how we relate to those in society. Secondly, this psalm by implication tells us that humility must be cultivated by daily choices. Every day we have a choice to be proud or humble ourselves, to exalt ourselves, to make, try to make somebody think more highly of, of us than we should. We, daily choices, regularly uh, quiet choices with wisdom in the secret heart to not put ourselves forward with words we shouldn't say. Alistair Begg not long ago told a story. He was in the car. I don't know how long ago this was. But he was driving somewhere with his wife and his children in the back seat. And this guy cuts him off. And he gets upset. He's, and then he starts. Linda's seen me do this. so. But Alistair told it first, not me. So he starts saying, man, they shouldn't even be driving. How'd they get their driver's license? And then, and then it kept on. He... More comments came. He was on a roll. And finally, one final comment with more emotion, and he stopped. And then his daughter from the back seat said, and there's another kind word from our pastor. <laughs> How much do we not control our tongue, and our choices. To hush ourselves, To say no to prideful thoughts, lofty eyes, high ambitions, self-exalting goals. To stop calling attention to ourselves in situations. Learn to hush our hearts and our tongues regularly. Humility is not to be a momentary victory. Humility is to govern our lives as a believer regularly. It's not to be a once in a while occurrence. It's to be a continual reality by the Holy Spirit. 
So let ambitions be abandoned, let lofty eyes be blinded, and let high thoughts die. Let's bring ourselves down to behave like a weaned child on our mom's lap. Maybe a weaned child in Jesus' lap. Thirdly, we must continually cultivate as a church an atmosphere and a culture of church humility. Answer this question in your heart. Does my church have any appearance of superiority or pride to the outside world? Does our church give off an aroma of arrogance? Do we relate to the lost in our evangelism with kindness and humility and listening and caring or harshly and argumentatively? A city set on a hill can't be hidden. So people see what our churches are like. They make observation. They know how we really behave. So here, Psalm 131 is a testimony by David of having a consistent, humble heart that's not proud, eyes that are no longer haughty or ego-driven, and thoughts that aren't intellectually arrogant about wanting to pursue things he shouldn't and he really doesn't know anything about. A humble man consistently contented to be who he truly is. Some of us would really get free in our lives and more joy if we accepted just firmly and finally who God has made us. I am who God made me to be. And I can glorify God in my life, but not by trying to be like somebody else. Genuine, consistent humility as a living example. It is really amazing to me that David truly was changed. He was not what verse 1 says about pride. He was truly stating what is true of him now. Is humility seen and heard among us Or is there an attitude of pride and superiority seen and heard in us? What shines forth? We know the Lord Jesus is the supreme example of Psalm 131. He made Himself willing to be ignorant of some things. He didn't know the day or hour of His coming. There were other things. Only as the Father showed Him, And the Spirit taught him, did he walk in the light that he had as a man? He was content to rest his heart in one consideration. Even so, Father, it seemed good in your sight. You and I as believers can progress in humility. We can put death, put pride to death. We can put selfish ambition to death. And we can attain. If pride, if pride is a besetting sin for you, this psalm is for you. Because God can put that pride to death that tries to dominate. And you can become like David in Psalm 131, a godly, 
humility of heart as a lifestyle. May God help us for this to be real to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that the Bible is true and absolutely applies to all of us. We confess, Lord, we need what's here in this psalm. Would you work it in us? Would you make us more like the Lord Jesus in His character, His humility, His attitude, His heart, and cause us, Lord, to be weaned from all that is not of You and to hope only in You. More today than ever, more in the future, and Lord, indeed forever. Hear us, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.